Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. This is a show where we meet Charlotte area authors and those who visit the Queen City and we hear them read their work. Today, we're recording our first live episode, and we're doing it in Center City, Charlotte, at the coffee shop Coco and the Director. So if you hear a little background activity and chatter, it's all good. Thank you, Coco and the Director, too. And thank you to our audience for showing up to support us. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're, uh, we're grateful to our season three sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, for helping local authors and those who visit the Queen City give voice to their written words. Park Road Books is the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, with a welcoming staff ready to help you find your next great read. And the store's right there in the Park Road Shopping Center with the big blue letters. And Charlotte Mecklenburg Library serves as an essential connector of a thriving community of readers, leaders, and learners. With 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence, their mission is to improve lives and build a strong community. We're also grateful to the Queen City Podcast Network. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, yeah. Of which this show is now affiliated for running the technical part of this live production. The network is a collection of locally based, locally produced, locally focused podcasts that you can take anywhere and listen to at your own pace. And they've been recording live here yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Um, this episode will release Tuesday, May 14th, and you can find links and information about this episode in the show notes at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with this prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet Kathy Izzer, author of the award-winning book, The Hunter Story Home, a memoir about finding faith in ourselves and something bigger. The something bigger in the title, that thing Kathy found faith in, was battling chronic homelessness in Charlotte. For Kathy, this mission came in the form of a challenge. Kathy had read a New York Times best-selling book entitled Same Kind of Different as Me, which the book cover says is about a modern-day slave, an international art dealer, and the unlikely woman who bound them together. It's a story about a homeless man in Fort Worth, Texas named Denver Moore. With much hesitation, meets and befriends an art dealer and his wife, a woman Denver describes in the opening passage of the book as the skinniest, nosiest, pushiest woman I ever met, black or white. Kathy Isra became a bit pushy too in a good way in her quest to take on chronic homelessness in Charlotte. But that quest never would have gotten off the ground or been as big as it was without a one-on-one -on -one meeting she had with Denver Moore, who she had invited to Charlotte to speak at a fundraiser about homelessness. While Denver was in town, Kathy proudly showed him about the around the Urban Ministry Center so that he could see all the good things Charlotte was doing to help the homeless. The art studio, the vegetable garden, the soup kitchen, where Kathy spent years volunteering with her family. But it didn't go how she planned. She heard silence rather than praise. And then Denver asked her the question that began to haunt her in the days and years to follow. We opened the show with Kathy reading about her encounter with Denver Moore, the one that changed her life and change the lives of many chronic homeless people in Charlotte. Denver's silence was disturbing. Was there a message in that? Was he communicating by not speaking? I remembered one of Ron's favorite Denverisms. If you're really serious about helping somebody, crawl down in the ditch with them and bandage up their wounds and stick with them until they're strong enough to crawl up on your back and get out. Weren't we helping? All of our art, soccer and gardening, as well as our services, were designed to build relationships with neighbors and restore their dignity. Most cities just had soup kitchens and limited services, 
But in our 13 years, the Urban Ministry Center had developed extensive programming far beyond this basic first aid response. Yet Denver had not asked a single question, made one comment, or expressed one word of admiration about our innovations. Frustrated, I turned to leave. That's when Denver finally spoke. Motioning to the stairway in front of us, he asked, can we go upstairs now? I was beyond frustrated, angry even. I couldn't believe Denver was finally showing interest when there was nothing to see. There's nothing up there, just offices. Denver looked from the stairs to me and then back again. All these years later, I still hear his question and the ones that followed it as clearly as I did that day. Where are the beds? The beds? I asked, utterly confused. As I started the long, complicated explanation of how Charlotte has several shelters, Denver's dark face silenced me. Clearly, I wasn't getting his point. You mean to tell me, you do all this good in the day, and then you lock them out to the bad at night? His accusation left me gutted. Denver patiently allowed me my discomfort. He watched me silently wrestle with my new awareness before he quietly asked his next question. Does that make any sense to you? Of course, it made no sense. I was flooded with shame. Denver's next question would change the trajectory of my path forever. It was the question I had been waiting for and looking to answer ever since my dad died nine years before. Are you going to do something about it? When Kathy Isra began working on her first manuscript in 2011, her writer's voice wasn't yet fully formed, but she knew she had important stories to tell about the four years she spent working with homeless people in Charlotte. She felt she had witnessed some miracles and felt passionate about getting those stories into the world. After six years and 15 drafts, those stories were woven into a manuscript that became an award-winning, self-published memoir. And then, and what is not typical once a book is self-published, she got a book contract and a reprinting for the 100-story home. And some of those are going to be given away today, so if you hang around, you're going to get a book. Her award-winning memoir has been featured on NPR and inspires people to be change-makers in their communities. She was honored as a William J. Clinton Distinguished Lecturer at the Clinton School of Public Service. Kathy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Landis. So what do you think, Coco and the Director, live podcast? I know, yeah. first time live, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so we're gonna get back to your life growing up, because this is, after all, a memoir. But first, this inciting incident, Denver's Challenge, where are the beds, and are you gonna do something about it? How, how did that make you feel? Oh my gosh, I, I wrote the word I was gutted, and I, I think that's exactly what it felt like. I. I thought we were doing so many good things, and I thought our work was, was really great, but he, he made me see things in a completely different way, and I, I really, I think I felt ashamed that I'd been down there volunteering for almost 10 years, and I'd never seen it the way he showed it to me that day. And you, kind of, you invited him to Charlotte because you were doing a fundraiser. You got him here, and uh, you actually picked him up to take him to show him around, and you just, you thought you were going to show him something that you were so proud of, and he turned it on his head, right? Oh, 100%. I, I, I really thought he was going to give us a pack on the back and say, oh my gosh, Charlotte, you are first-rate homeless services. Well done. 
And in, and in fact, he, he changed everything. And then after that meeting, I could no longer unsee what I saw. Yeah. And um, I think that's what really changed is, is because I could never go down there and serve soup again and, and think that we were doing enough. So what changes did these questions cause you to make in your own life at this point in time? Well, first, I started not sleeping very well <laughs> because I couldn't forget what he said. And I started thinking about the other people around Charlotte who were not sleeping very well at night because there was no place for them to go. We had shelters, but there were still people in our streets and, you know, downtown. And so we started doing the research to see what would it take to change. And I, eventually, two months later, I quit my job. Um, I was a graphic designer, so completely unqualified to take on chronic homelessness or do anything about um, building homes for the homeless. But I quit my job and went to work for the Urban Ministry Center. So I take it you had some doubts about this. But early on, Denver looked at you and said, almost like a field of dreams kind of thing, he said, don't, don't be scared. If you take this on, people will come to help you, right? Yeah, I was taking, even after that you know, initial, I didn't even know what he was asking me to do. I didn't know what beds meant. I didn't really know what I was being called to do. But I was taking him back um, to the airport, and I said, um, you know, what should I do? And he said, well, well don't be scared. The people are going to help you. They already know they're coming. Hmm. And, and it, really, it really was. I had no idea what he was talking about. Um, but I remember those words now even 11 years later because he was right. As we worked on this, which was an incredibly big thing to figure out how to house chronically homeless in Charlotte, North Carolina, it did seem time after time, every time something was difficult or we had a door closed, the people who were going to help us, they kind of showed up and made it happen. So a little definition here, chronic homelessness, what, what, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, so, um, Homelessness is, is big, it's a, it's a spectrum, and I think what we're used to is situationally homeless, someone who's maybe lost their job or had a health crisis, um, and it, they lose their apartment or they lose their home, and they end up maybe in the shelter. But the chronic homeless is, a, is you know, that on steroids. It's someone who's been on our streets um, at least a year, but we had people who'd been on our streets 10, 15, 20 years, and the also important thing to remember about someone who's chronically homeless, by definition, they have a disability, whether it's physical, mental, intellectual, um, addictions, all of those things make someone unsuccessful on the streets. And so what they need not only is a home, but they need some case management to help them with the services that will make them successful. Yeah, and we might be jumping ahead here just a little bit, but I remember from one thing in your book is that when you started to house some of these uh, people that were homeless, there were other challenges because they now were in an environment where they were lonely, right? They didn't yes. have the activities of the streets. They had shelter, they had other things, but you had to deal with that as well. Right? Yeah, I don't think I'd realize until I really started um, doing the work. You know, when I was volunteering once a, a month, I didn't see it, but I didn't, once I was there every day, you realize what a community there is of people helping each other who are experiencing homelessness on the streets. and. By housing someone, we were also kind of disrupting that. And so we had to figure out um, not only case management, but how to create kind of a new social structure for folks that were no longer homeless, they were housed. So I'd like to talk to you about sort of where you were um, at the time of this conversation with Denver. You had been working for the Urban Ministry Center, uh, just volunteering from time to time, right? Yes, I was just a volunteer once right. a month. You worked in the soup kitchen, right? Yes, my family used to go the fourth Sunday of the month and we would serve soup. I would go with my four daughters and my husband and we would go down and just volunteer. And 
your children, you, you, you said in the book you kept your distance, right? Yes. And so why were you keeping your distance from these people? So if you've never been to the soup kitchen, there's a window that kind of the volunteers are behind and making the soup and the sandwiches. And um, you, there's a counter that people pick up their tray and then go and sit in the lunchroom. And really for almost 10 years, I stayed very purposefully behind that counter. I think I was fearful to go around. My kids would go out and sit with people and um, take drinks and, and eat lunch, but I was very fearful behind the counter. And I think the main reason was I didn't understand how someone might end up homeless. Um, I thought the circumstances were probably tragic and messy. And maybe a little bit like the way that I grew up, my mother was bipolar. And I was pretty sure that a lot of the stories in that soup kitchen were filled with mental illness, and I'd never been able to help my own mother, so I was pretty sure I wasn't going to be able to help someone on the streets of Charlotte. So your children didn't have the same reticence. You talk about a situation where they go up to one of the, uh, the, the homeless men who comes in every day, and he's got a, a tattoo in the middle of his head that says Harley, right? <laughs> yes. And your daughter Kaylee, who's not shy, she goes up to him, and I think in the book it says, he says to her, you know what my name is, darling? And Haley guessed Harley. Yes, right? yeah. If anyone uh, lived in Charlotte around uh, 10, 15 years ago, there was a very famous chronically homeless person named Chili Willie. He was known on the streets as Chili Willie. But late one night, I think somebody had talked him into a ta tattoo parlor of putting a um, Harley Davidson tattoo on his forehead. So it, it clearly read Harley Davidson on his forehead. And so my daughter, Kaylee, who was probably eight at the time, thought it was a trick question since his name appeared to be written across his forehead. But yeah, that, that was Chili Willie. And he said, nope, it's Chili. Chili Willie, because I'm a cool guy. The coolest there is. The coolest you'll ever meet, right? Yeah. He, and you he met was. Chili Willie, right? Um, yeah, very often. And yeah. I, I think the interesting thing about Chili Willie is um, I didn't know, but actually his brother was my plumber. So I had known his brother for years. He'd been in my home. And one day he, he said, well, he was going to leave the job he was doing to go give his brother some money. And I said, well, just let your brother come here. And he said, oh, no, my, my brother's homeless. He lives in the park. I'm going to meet him there. And it, I don't know why, but it occurred to me. I, I said, Johnny, is your brother Chilly Willie? And he said, yeah. And I think that was the first time I realized, you know, that it does, homelessness doesn't happen in abstract. There's families, there's stories. They were children. They grew up. And um, I think that was the first time I connected those dots. All right, Kathy, we're going to be doing some more readings uh, through the show here as we, as we do on Charlotte Reader's Podcast. But let's talk about your life for just a minute. You grew up in El Paso, Texas. Right? I did, kind of so off the grid, West what, Texas. What kind of child were you growing up? Well-behaved? you follow your... I, mean, <laughs> I, I was. I, I was definitely scared to make a mistake or do anything wrong. I was okay. definitely a, a pretty straight arrow kid, and then you, maybe till high school. And then you went into college and you chose this career of graphic design. I right? did. Yeah. Now, um, you open the memoir with a scene involving an easy bake oven, right? Yes. How old were you at that time? It was my six-year-old birthday party in okay. that scene in the book. And you wanted nothing more on your sixth birthday than an easy bake oven, right? right? Yes. And, 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 I your, don't know. and your mother came through. Yeah. You, you got the easy bake oven. You thought she was superwoman, right? She could Always. do anything. And then she disappeared from your life for how long? Well, it wasn't. It was an immediate disappearance right after that. Um, that's when my mother I said that she um, had a bipolar diagnosis. And so that was the first time of her first break, was right after my six-year-old birthday party. Um, and then off and on for the next 16 years, as we tried to figure out what was the right diagnosis, how to help her, she would go in and out 
um, of hospitals and, and trying to get help. She was never gone forever from my life, but there were long periods where she was in the hospital or coming out or in a deep depression and kind of unable to care for us. So it was an off and on 16 years. And, and since that informed some of the work that you did in battling chronic homelessness, I'd like you to read this little piece from page 20 of your, um, of your memoir. I retreated that night to my secret hiding place at the top of my closet. The space was just wide and tall enough for a six-year-old to sit and dangle her feet over the edge. It was my indoor treehouse, where only my stuffed animals were allowed. I curled up on the shelf and hugged Snoopy, wondering if Mom would ever come home. The suddenness of her affliction shattered us. When my mom came home after several weeks, she was deflated and lifeless. She slept, it seemed, for almost as many days as she had been gone. My sisters went to camp that summer, and I went to stay with my aunt and uncle in San Antonio. At the time, I thought it was a vacation with my cousins, but I came to understand later it was because my mom still couldn't care for us. That hospital stay was the first of many. Sometimes I wouldn't see her for weeks. My grandparents and dad would whisper in the kitchen, exhaustion, fragile constitution. Lindsay always tries to do too much. With each episode, the worry deepened. My grandfather, a general practitioner, consulted psychiatrists and psychologists. In the early 1970s, these doctors had trouble naming my mother's condition. Nervous breakdown? Schizophreniform psychosis. It would require the right doctor, the right medicine, and the right diagnosis, bipolar disorder, to truly bring my mom home to us. It would also take 16 years. During that agonizing period, each time as inexplicably as mom went away, she would return. With each recurrence, however, a little more of her had blown away. And each time, a little more resentment built up inside of me. Why did she sleep so much? Why didn't she just wake up? When mom unraveled, so did our family. She was the thread that pulled us tight. And each time she left for a new treatment or hospital stay, we frayed a little more. So, Kathy, one of the differences here is that your mother had a roof over her head. Exactly. And how did her experience and your dealing with that experience inform, you know, your work in battling homelessness? Did you, did you come closer? Uh, did you resist getting closer? Well, I, I resisted for a good 10 years until I think Denver took my face and wouldn't let me see what, what there was to see. And I think um, what I was trying to look away from was the knowledge that all the people who were in our soup kitchen each week and that we were serving and, and trying to help were not different from my mother, except in my case, my family had resources to try and get her the right doctors, to try and get her care, to pay for therapy. And I realized that some of the women that I was watching on the streets of Charlotte who were homeless and sleeping under the bridge or in tents, they hadn't had that. And so when you layer mental illness upon trauma, upon being homeless and the horrible things that happens on the street, I mean, it had taken my mom 16 years with incredible resources. And then we have people on the streets. They, had, they have none of that. You also talk in the memoir about the influence of your father early in, in the memoir. You say on, as early as page 13 of the memoir that when daughters in the American South were still being raised with the primary goal of becoming wives and mothers, dad expected more. And his refrain was, you can do anything, Kathy, right? Yes, yeah, you can yeah. do anything, really, anything. Yeah, and, and when you heard these words in your head, or let me ask this way, 
when Denver spoke to you and challenged you, did you hear your father's words in your head, or were you still not sure? No, I wasn't sure, but I think later, as, as I decided that I was going to do this, that I was going to quit my job, and I was going to try and figure this out, even though I was ridiculously unqualified to do that, I think that's when I could constantly hear my dad's optimism and enthusiasm and, and belief in doing good and changing the world. I, I think that's when it really played, played out in my head. And you had sort of two commandments that you were living your life by from, from what you said in your memoir. You had one from your father, which was do good. Yes. And you had one from your grandmother, Gigi, which was love well. Yes. Right? So how does do good and love well help you along this path of battling homelessness? Well, I think for a long time I, I focused heavily on the do good, probably at the um, expense of my family, which was the love well part. Because at one point I became so obsessed um, with helping all those on the streets that I was not able to really see what was happening in my own home. And I did write about some in the book about, you know, you're, when you're raising four teenagers, there's a lot you should be paying attention to. And I think because I became so obsessed with helping people on the street that I probably looked away from my own family for a long time. So I think I, I try now to do the balance of do good, do good, love well, because we need to have self-care and, and family care along with trying to save the world. All right, let's, let's talk about the arc of this story for just a minute, sort of the big picture. Um, you had to do a lot of research first to figure out what might work in Charlotte, right? Yes. You, even, you traveled to New York, and you looked at how they housed uh, chronically homeless. Yes. And then you did the fundraising, right, because it didn't gonna come free. Yeah. It was not free. Uh, it was, and this was a coming together of public and private funds over a period of how, how many years? Well, we started in 2008 with a small pilot program and then realized it was like finding a cure for cancer that we were only going to give to the 13 people in our pilot program. So we dreamed a very big dream that we were going to build our own building, like the one I'd seen in New York. And in Charlotte, it was going to cost us around $10 million. Um, so and back up to the pilot program. That's where you selected 13 chronically homeless and you put them in apartments that were supervised by your Yes, Great. by a case manager and by myself, and so we would check on them. But And we realized that once someone who'd been on the streets almost 20 years, and all of a sudden they were getting um, access to medical care and psychiatric care and, frankly, sleeping well. I mean, when you don't sleep for several days in a row, you imagine how that's magnified when you haven't slept for 10 years or 15 years or 20 years. So people that we thought were severely and persistently mentally ill, once they had some sleep. They weren't looking so crazy. They were a lot easier to help. And you ended up with, um, you call it the 100-story home. Does that mean you got 100 rooms or more? We did eventually. Um, between the pilot program and the building we built, we made homes for 100. And that title refers not only to the over 100 that we helped, um, but all the people who came, um, their stories as well, all the people who were helping us. And now more than 800 chronically homeless have been housed. All right, so where, the, 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 the end result, the, the building that you built is three stories. It's out where? Is it out? To it's off of Graham Street, and it's called Moore Place, if you recognize the first part of that. It's named in honor of Denver Moore and also um, a couple who helped pay for our pilot program, whose name, coincidence or not, was Moore as well. So it's named in honor of both of them. And you took me on a tour recently, and we walked through the building, and, and there was a, a kind gentleman who showed us his room, you supply the bed, you supply the refrigerator, you supply sofa, you supply the needs, and then you also supply some health care, some social workers, there's a library, there's some other 
attributes that, that helps yeah. make it home for them, right? Exactly, because people who are moving in, they don't, they don't come with dish towels and forks and plates and blankets, you know? So we have to have a, a fully furnished apartment um, and the case management to make them successful. We made this sound like it was, you know, we've watched the episode real quickly and it was just, you know, boom, we, ha we made just this. Just insta-house, just, just insta-house for 100. Made, made it happen, yes. but here, you had a little pushback along the way, right? There was a lot of pushback. There were a lot yeah. of pitfalls. Um, frankly, because it, because those people, we don't want those people correct. in our neighborhood, right? Yes. In fact, you got one message from somebody that says, "You are not Jesus Christ." Correct. Right? I, I got a lot of yeah. hate mail. That might have been the nicer yeah. one of the messages I got. Yeah, and so even though, why do you think that is? Do you, I mean, the stigma of being homeless does it? It it's, it's makes people think that there is the, this other, they're not like us, there's something wrong with it. What, yes, what do you think? I, think, I think we mistakenly believe there's an us and, an, and them when really there's a we. And in 11 years, I've never met anyone who said, gosh, you know, when I grow up, I really hope I'm homeless and now I've achieved my goal. I mean, right. everyone that we've helped had the hopes and dreams that any one of us have and frankly, we're blindsided by their homelessness. And I think the really important thing to remember is homeless is an adjective um, that describes their temporary circumstance of housing. It is not an, an adjective that describes someone's character. There's no such thing. So to set up this next little reading you've got, um, you were trying to find out more about what it's like to be homeless. And so you went to a class uh, on understanding poverty to get a better idea how a homeless person thinks and feels, right? Yes. All right, let's read that little segment. Okay. Imagine a time when there's an ice storm or a power outage, the instructor said. You have no power, no hot water in your house, and no way to cook any food. The refrigerator doesn't work, and you can't use your computer or charge your phone. That wasn't too hard to imagine. When my daughter Lauren was nine months old, Hurricane Hugo hit Charlotte, and we had no power for almost 10 days. It was miserable. I had to take her to the YMCA for baths, and every meal was an ordeal. Now, imagine this has gone on for a week or more, the instructor said. You can't sleep at night because it's so cold in your house, and you spend all day trying to figure out where your next meal might be coming from and how to do something as simple as make a phone call. The class nodded in agreement, many recalling our own Hugo stories. It's rough, right? All the things you take for granted, like eating, sleeping, and just staying in touch, become the focus of your day. You spend all your energy on just getting those things done, plus you're exhausted from not sleeping, right? He paused as we all nodded, remembering similar experiences. So what would happen if during that time, someone tried to talk with you about opening an IRA account? I would hang up on, the, I would hang up on them if I had a phone, one man said. The class laughed. Right, the instructor said. How could you possibly listen to do something about your long-term future when your immediate situation is an absolute crisis? You wouldn't care what happens in the future. Only this moment, the next 10 minutes, you can only care about the next 24 hours. We all agreed. That's what homelessness is like, he said. Except for many people, it lasts years, not days or weeks. And so, in part, that's what Denver was trying to say to you. Before we can go out in the garden, before we can go join this team before we can do this we've got to have a place to sleep we've got to have something exactly you know so okay now you mentioned hugo essentially you mentioned hugo because 
my son, who's 29, just flew through town here. He's not here long, and, but, and my wife's here. She was pregnant with him when Hugo was here. We were having a, she was having to cook on the outdoor. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah, and for 12 days, we had no power. Fortunately, it came on the day he was born. You know. Oh, lucky and you. Luck, yeah. Lucky us, yeah. So, and you didn't call him Hugo? I can't no, believe that. Yeah. <laughs> that's right, calling Hugo. So um, a little bit about homelessness in Charlotte, the numbers, the resources, the challenges. What are we dealing with today? Today we're dealing with um, probably 6,000 total um, throughout a year. On any given night, we do a point-in-time count, and our last point-in-time count showed around 1,600 um, that were currently homeless on that night. Explain, explain that. Point in time, you go out at night and you count. You, you count. Who's in the shelters? Who's um, under bridges? Who's in tent camps? Um, yes, you count every single person on that single night. And we do, you do it over four nights and take the average. So it was around 1,600 in January. And then the chronic um, homeless was around 400. So I liked, uh, when you're talking about homeless people, you had sort of an epiphany yourself on page 84. You said, the realization hit me hard. Once homeless people are housed, they're just people, right? Exactly. Yeah. And uh, there's another section of the book where you talk about the cost of the county and the city and actually the public ignoring homelessness. Yes. Million Dollar Murray. Explain Million Dollar Murray. So that was a Million Dollar Murray was an essay written by Malcolm Gladwell and he took the cost of one homeless man in Reno, Nevada. And he wanted to prove the idea that it, it's not free to allow people to die on our streets. So, you know, whether you believe in solving homelessness because we are our brother's keeper or because of the community cost. And he saw that when you think about things like overusing ER rooms or jail cells or hospitals and all of those, all of those things add up. The average cost of a chronically homeless person on the streets of Charlotte is around $39,000 per person per year. And for that, you'd get nothing. Their life doesn't change. They will be homeless the next year. You will spend $39,000 at least that year and the next year. But a housing program like ours, we found, could save lives and save taxpayer dollars for around $13,000 per year. Yeah, so it was a pretty powerful argument. So, so Liz Clausen Kelly wrote, she took that, and, she, and she's the head of the urban ministry now combined with... She's about to be the new CEO, CEO yes. Dale oh. retires next week. Okay, so. and they're merging with the men's shelter? Correct. Right? Okay, and she wrote a, a piece for The Observer where she broke this down too. A jail cell, $110 a night. An ER visit, $1,029 average. A hospital bed. $2,100 average, and then she keeps going and going and going. With those kind of numbers, it almost, well, we need somebody to come in here and talk about their IRA, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because you're really cutting into it. Yes. All right, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a, a, just a short break where we can play a little spot here that relates to where I do uh, my recording when I'm not out doing live podcasts with Brian. Uh, we're going to do that break. We're going to come back. We're going to meet Coleman. Coleman's one of your people that you housed. Yes. Uh, we're going to talk about writing the book. Uh, we're going to have the author to author segment. We're going to have a few final questions about faith and your journey. So hang on, folks, for another 90 seconds. Uh, hey, listeners, I'm here uh, with Charlotte Long, the community manager at Advent Coworking. Uh, hey, Charlotte. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, now you're, uh, you're the face people see when they walk in the front door. Oh, yeah. no. Yeah, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I uh, guess I am. Yeah, and you give tours, so take us on sort of a little tour here at Advent Coworking. 
Yeah, Advent Coworking is a co-working space in Plaza Midwood, um, and we really try to um, push the envelope of what co-working can be and show that it's a good option for so many different types of people. A lot of people focus on kind of the tech startup world, which we do have a lot of folks who are in that world, but we show that it can be a great option for everybody because we have different types of membership depending on what your needs are for your business or your passion project, like a podcast. Mm, yeah. Um, and we have so many different cool, funky spaces where you can work and really find a spot where you can be productive and meet new people every single day. Is this the fountain of youth of Belmont community? Is that what this is? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. You can quote me on that. <laughs> yeah, great day. Charlotte, where can people find you online and how do they email you for more information? You can check us out at adventcoworking.com or you can email us at info at adventcoworking.com or we would love for you to just stop by, try it out for a day. And you'll give them a tour, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks, Charlotte. Thank you. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. All right, we're back with uh, Kathy Izzard, author of The 100-Story Home, a memoir about finding faith in ourselves and something bigger, and also the author of a uh, children's book that uh, sort of grew out of this uh, same journey that she had. Um, let's talk about Coleman for a minute, Kathy. Uh, most of the time, people avert their eyes to avoid contact with a homeless person, so let's put a face on homelessness. Tell us about Coleman. So I met Coleman in the pilot program in 2008. He was one of the first people that we housed. Um, moved directly from street to home. Coleman had been on the streets almost 20 years, and he was one of those people who found himself blindsided by his homelessness. At, at one point, he worked in a, was a supervisor in a factory, um, but he lifted boxes for a living, and he ended up injuring his back and had to get a surgery that went wrong and left him almost paralyzed. And through that experience, he not only um, became addicted to painkillers, but then he lost his job, he lost his home, and that started a long, sad slide into homelessness for him. Um, but he was very successful in our pilot program, and he was very inspirational to me personally, because he was willing to talk about how he got there, he was willing to share his story, and he was also willing to talk to others. A lot of people, once they get out of homelessness, are very ashamed, and they just don't want to talk about it or meet anyone. But Coleman was different. He really wanted to help educate people about how homelessness happens and to really understand that, that the people on the streets that you see, they're, they're just people. So you've got some great pictures in the middle of this book, and one of them is with, of Coleman, and he's holding up a set of keys. <laughs> he is. That was on his very first day of housing when we right. gave him the keys to his apartment and his new life that came with case management. He'd been on the streets almost... 20 years and he held up those keys and he said this is a Kodiak moment <laughs> a Kodiak moment a Kodiak he, he meant Kodak we all knew what he was talking yeah, about yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right so he also opened your eyes in other ways and and really opened the eyes of others that he came in contact with you were with him one time when he spoke to um, a high school group in a gymnasium, correct? Yeah, he had a very powerful talk. So I think that's uh, on page 193. We're going to have you read that uh, little, little segment here, and then we'll talk some more. In a packed gymnasium full of fidgeting teenagers, Coleman came to the lectern and quietly gazed at the audience. He continued to stare, not moving, not saying a word. Finally, after an uncomfortable silence, Coleman leaned into the microphone and spoke softly. Can you see me? 
the audience of gathered students thought he was asking if maybe they had a good view of the stage. So some students shifted in their seats. Another long pause. Can you see me? Coleman asked again. This time the question was more disturbing. That's important, Coleman said, because for 20 years, I didn't think anyone saw me. No one could see me because I didn't want to be seen. Drugs took all my pride, robbed me of every piece of self-respect, every dream I ever had. But somehow, God saw fit to give me a second chance. And that second chance is people like you. So Kathy, this concept of invisibility, it's like homeless people have one of those Harry Potter invisibility cloaks or something. Nobody can see it when they walk down the road, right? It's just, or well, did we just ignore what's right in front of us. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think it, you know, it, again, it's not homeless people. It's people experiencing homelessness. And there are people who might draw their blanket over their head or their coat or they don't want to be seen because there's a lot of shame with how they got there. Coleman was ashamed of being on the streets. He never saw himself being that way. But he did say sometimes when, when people would just look at him or smile or, you know, give him a nod, you didn't have to give him money. He just, he knew he was human. He felt human just in that moment. And it was really important to him. So you go through this journey, you help develop this fantastic facility, Moore's Place, and then you, it's almost like you want to write it down, but you're not sure what to do with the story, right? You weren't a writer. When no, you I was not a writer. I had no, I, when I was building the building, which was hard enough in itself, I had no um, aspirations of being an author, and I hadn't taken any notes because I wasn't planning to, to publish, but I kind of liked the idea to, to help house the homeless kept haunting me. I kept hearing this whisper to, to write it down, to write it down. And it, and it was such a series of miracles. The way we raised $10 million, it shouldn't have happened. You know, I, we should call this the miracle of more place because we launched that capital campaign in 2008 in the midst of a recession. There's no way that we should have raised that money. But like Denver said, all the people who were meant to help us, they kept coming and they did. And we ended up from gifts of children who did a lemonade stand and sent us $105 to two Davidson College kids who rode their bikes across the United States and sent us $6,000 from million dollar gifts to $10 gifts. We, we raised that money and, and that in itself was miraculous and that's why I started writing because I didn't want that to be lost. I didn't want what this city had come together as a community of we to really help people. I didn't want that story lost and that's why I started writing. And there was a touching story about uh, a card that kept coming in with a little small donation, right? Can you talk about that? Yeah, so the Charlotte Observer was very nice to us and was writing some articles about what we were doing between 2008 and 2009. And one day I, I got a card in the, in the mail at work and it was a you know, pink Hallmark card and I opened it up um, and a few dollars fell out, just a, a five and three ones. And it wasn't signed. I had no idea who it would be sent it, but it said, may God bless and multiply this small amount. And that was it, just someone sending their last $5 to try and help us. And then two weeks later, another one and another one, and they kept coming for almost two years. And even when we opened more place, the cards kept coming, always unsigned, always different amounts, but just someone believing in this dream with us and wanting to do all they could, just their own random act of kindness every couple of weeks. And did you find out who it was? We did. 
we found out that the woman behind all of those was a woman whose son was homeless. And she didn't know how to help her son, but she thought she could help someone's son. So she sent her cards and her letters and her $5, and she hoped that someday it would help her son. And it did, because her son was a gentleman named Dale Haley that we housed at Moore Place. And because we housed him, they were reunited, and we figured out the mystery behind our mailbox angel. That's great. All right, so talk about the book just a second. Um, we've got this little segment here, author to author segment. We take some authors from previous seasons. They throw a few questions at our authors in this season. Kathy Collins, who's a poet and co-founder of Charlotte Center for Literary Arts, you can hear her read poetry in season one of the podcast, but she has a couple of questions I'd like to throw at you now. Okay, okay great. She says, early in your book, you write that everything that had happened in your life was connected in such a way that in the moment of that call to do something about chronic homelessness, you could actually hear it. She says, writing a memoir is largely about making connections between the past and the present and between inner and outer experience. Could you talk a little about how you made these kind of connections in writing The 100-Story Home? Yeah, great question. Um, I was just intending to write the series of miracles. I was not intending to write a word about really myself, my childhood, and certainly about my mother's mental illness. And so I probably had been through five drafts over three years, and still none of that was in my book. And I was working in a writing class, a master's level writing class at Queens University. And my writing coach um, there looked at me and said, you know, this is, a, this is a good story, this series of miracles, and that you raised millions of dollars and housed the homeless. But what I want to know is, who were you that day? That when some guy says to you, what are you going to do about it? Why did you listen? Why not just go home and go to sleep? Why not forget about it? What made you quit your job? Who were you that day? Uh, because what would any of us have done if we'd have gotten the same question? We all come with different life experiences. We've got different things going on. And so they want to know, why did Kathy Izzard Correct. take up the challenge? Right? Yeah, and, and the answer lay, you know, took two more years of writing, uh, two editors, <laughs> frankly, two therapists, because I started writing about things that I never wanted to write about or think about, and I'd, I'd forgotten. Um, but it really is the heart of this book, and what readers say to me draws them in is because I'm talking about things that no one wants to talk about. No one wants to talk about mental illness or stigma or what happened to them and, and their childhood experiences. And so she was so right to give me that advice, and it completely transformed this book in, into what it is. Another question from Kathy. She says, the other tricky aspect of memoir writing is deciding when, how, and how much to disclose about family members and close friends and about yourself. How did you make these decisions, and how have your loved ones responded to the stories you've told about them and yourself? Yeah, it is. I really, for the longest time, I didn't think I had the courage to put this book into the world. And I would put it in a drawer, and then I'd take it out, and then I'd close my computer, and then I'd open it back up. Um, and, you know, there were chapters I just wrote for myself, and at the end of the day, I realized I really didn't want to put those um, into the world. Um, but finally, I decided that I felt the bulk of it was going to be helpful, that it was going to allow someone not only to see in my story their story, it was hopefully let somebody see how crazy I felt to do all this, um, but that I had the faith and courage to do it, and that maybe they're being called to something too, and it'll make them feel less crazy if they can read my story. And so that's finally why I did it, why I put it into the world. My family's been very supportive. My mom, as you can imagine, was um, 
really fearful um, of what the reaction might be. She had spent you know, her entire life in El Paso, Texas, and never even told her best friends about her bipolar disorder. But um, they've come to support her and to understand, and it really has been a second gift of this book, is to allow my mother, at age 84, um, to say what was and to you know, not look at her bipolar diagnosis with shame and just to, to say what happened. So Kathy, you've been battling lots of obstacles, not just in building Moore's Place, but also in getting this book into the world. You, you took this story, you went through all these edits, you got lots of feedback, and then you tried to find a publisher. And nobody cared. And nobody cared. <laughs> and so you went out and said, well, okay, I'm going to independently publish this book. And you did, right? I did. I thought, well, after six years and you know, all of this work, both self-reflection work and the hard work of, of building something. I'm going to put this story into the world. I'm just, you know, I don't know. But you, did, you didn't stop there. And it, 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 it's a testament to your, your get up and keep going because you got out there and you really went out there and talked about this story, talked about this book, and you started selling a hell of a lot of books, right? I did. I'm stubborn like that. I, just, I wanted to see just one on the table, and I thought, well, if nobody ever reads it but my family, that's fine. But then friends read it, who gave it to friends, who gave it to book clubs, who gave it to church groups, who gave it to others, who went to other cities, and all of a sudden, several thousand copies had been sold. And then those same publishers who had no interest in your work said, ah, hey, maybe I'd like to to publish, and you got a contract, right? I did, that was actually my favorite story. The very publisher who turned me down in 2014 through the help of local agent Sally McMillan actually bought my book in um, 2017. So that, that was probably, that felt the best maybe of anything. And I would say that self-publishing a book, I think may be harder than building an apartment building for 100. <laughs> All right, all you authors out there, now you know what the, you know what the challenge is. <laughs> you know what the challenge is. All right, so there's another question here that, that Kathy asked that kind of feeds into the sort of the last line of inquiry I want to go into here with you. Um, her question is, how did the writing of the memoir challenge or change your faith? So maybe we need to understand a little bit about your faith before we talk about challenging it. Well, I think I was one of those, um, you know, people who had decided that religion was not for me. Um, I had seen my parents who were very devoutly religious and I was raised very Presbyterian. I'd watched them pray through my mother's illness and go to church and, and frankly I, I didn't think it had helped. And so I, I had turned away from anything that looked like um, religion and re found that, you know, I, I found a little bit of faith at the Urban Ministry Center and kind of faith in service. But then in building more place, I realized it was something that was so much bigger than me that I had to believe in something. I had to believe in something bigger than me. And, and when I started writing and putting all those miracles down one after another and seeing how the dots had lined up, and frankly, it was a series of magical dominoes that if even one had not happened, then the whole thing wouldn't have worked. And I, I really had to look back and and not believe in coincidence, but believe in something a lot bigger than that. So you wrote this chapter, and it, it, it's a question, and the chapter says, crazy or called? Yes. So you, you had questions. Were you hearing voices in your head? Whose voices were they? What if you really were supposed to meet Denver? Were you crazy? Yes. Or was there a higher power somehow involved in all these coincidences, yeah. right? And you had doubts too, right? 
Well, yeah, frankly, if you're the child of a, of a mother who, who's heard voices and you've witnessed that, and you're all of a sudden listening to a guy who's 30 years homeless that told you to build beds, you, you start to feel pretty crazy, that, that maybe it's just my genetic predisposition to mania and not really anything else. So I had to kind of sort between the two. And in this chapter, you said you felt like building Moore's Place sounded kind of like a Noah's Ark foolishness to you. Yes. Right? I mean, yeah. if you look on the face of it, it is. A graphic designer and, you know, Dale Molnick, the executive director of the Urban Ministry Center, is a preacher. So we've got a preacher and a graphic designer setting out to solve chronic homelessness and build an apartment building. That's not how you do it? Is that? No, it looks a little crazy. <laughs> uh, it looks crazy even now, looking back. And, and I love this chapter because you go visit your minister. You're, you're a member of Christ Church, right? Yes. And Lisa Saunders, who's a minister there, is, is also a friend of yours. And you, yes. you were having all these concerns and problems and doubts and you didn't know who was talking to you. Was it, was it crazy thoughts in my head? Was it God speaking to me? And you go to speak to Lisa, who did a good job of listening at first, right? She did. She wouldn't tell you the answers at first, No, right? she was acting just like a therapist. Yeah, and uh, so, so Lisa's, Lisa's actually going to be in season three as well. She's written a book called Even at the Grave. Which yeah, she, it's great. Her own memoir is really good. But you're sitting there, and you're talking with her, and, you, and you're asking her all these questions like, well, what if I really was supposed to meet Denver and, you know, this whole thing about Noah's Ark? And then you say to her, how would I know I wasn't hearing manic voices? You know, was it real? You know, and so forth. And she's just listening, listening. And then I think at the end, you, I think you ask her about whether any of this has anything to do with God, right? And mm -hmm. uh, then you say in your book, Lisa leaned back and smiled. She seemed relaxed, like she had been waiting to deliver this punchline. Because you'd asked her, when will I know? When will I know whether it's God or whether it's something else? She said, you'll know. And she said it with utter confidence. God has a funny way of showing off. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so Lisa helped you a little bit along that journey? She helped me a lot. And, then the, and the writing was very, you know, if you ever try to work out a problem, I think that's why a lot of people journal and write. Because you really can see your way clear when you start to write. So it was, I think, between people like Lisa, who are in my life, and the writing process, all of it, became a lot clearer to me. So let's talk about what's next in Charlotte and battling homelessness. Are you going to build another Moore's Place? Is something going on there? We are. Other than the uh, you know Urban Ministry Center and Men's Shelter merge, which will become one large organization, um, listen out because we have some very big plans of maybe more and more places. More, more places. That's going to be hard to yeah. say. Right. So, all right. But before we, um, we leave this, um, You've got an inspiring message, inspiring book. It's been an inspiring journey. But you sort of conclude at the end that callings, you know, regardless of what you may have been hearing, where it was coming from, callings are not just for ministers. They're not just for the godlike. And so I'd like you to pick it up on page 235 there. I no longer believe a calling is reserved exclusively for people like Dale or Louise who go into the ministry. I believe now we're each called to life true, abundant, purposeful life. Each of us has a call, patiently waiting and whispering. You might have heard yours already, but are afraid to admit it. It could be as big as a building, as technical as creating pro formas for a nonprofit, or as simple and powerful as a ministry of sending cards. My message to you is this. Trust the whisper. Whatever it is, Whatever you feel is quietly, persistently, relentlessly calling to you, no matter how crazy or inconvenient it might be to listen. Once you hear it, 
that one true thing, it's impossible to turn away because it will keep whispering. And when it does, you must either spend the rest of your life answering it or pretending you never heard it. Be willing to let go. Be willing to listen. Be willing to take that leap of faith. When you do, the life you can't see is infinitely richer and more significant than the life you can see and thought you had planned. So Kathy, what is whispering to you now? What is whispering to me now? Well, apparently going back to the Urban Ministry Center and raising some more money, that seems to be part of the whisper that we've, we, we need to do more. Um, some more writing is whispering to me. I found out through the 100-story home and a good night for Mr. Coleman, I actually really like being a writer. And um, so I'm working on another manuscript. Yeah, so tell us about Good Night, uh, Mr. Coleman. It's your children's book. You've got it here as well. I yeah. do. That um, came out of a reader in Austin, Texas, who is a church librarian. And she said, you know, you should make the 100-story home into a children's book. I'm always looking for books for kids who tell this message of serving and doing good. And honestly, I thought she was crazy at the time because it had taken me six years and 300 pages to put the message into the 100-story home, and I couldn't figure out how I was going to distill that down um, into a small message. But then um, all of a sudden, literally at 5 o'clock in the morning, I woke up one day after about six months of thinking, and I thought, I know. It's, it's about my friend, Mr. Coleman. It's, it's, it's simple. It's one life. One man meets one little girl like my daughter's in the soup kitchen who asks, where's Mr. Coleman's bed? And why can't we do something about it? And um, so that's the basis of the children's book. Well, that's great. Well, for those of you who've hung around, uh, and we really appreciate it throughout the podcast, you're, you can come up afterwards, um, and Kathy's got some books that she'll sign for you. They're children, free. Free, free books, children books, and the 100 Story Home book. Uh, where can we find your books when they're not being given away free at this live podcast sponsored by Queen City Podcast Network? <laughs> right. Well, obviously, they're online anywhere um, that you want. We won't mention the, the A word right, because yeah. we are being sponsored today <laughs> by Park, Park Road, Road Books. Books. And exactly. so I would encourage everyone here to support your independent bookstore. If you're listening to this out of town somewhere, I hope you um, look for your independent bookstore. But in Charlotte, please go to Park Road Books and they have both books there. All right, we're going to do the end roll with music here in just a second. But, uh, Kathy, I want to thank you so much for thank you, being on the show. And, and thanks for everyone you. here. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. If you liked our show, please tell your friends. And please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Reviews are kind of like that gasoline that drives traffic to the podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, which is free, by the way, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our social media links, if you're into that sort of thing, are at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. If you have feedback or an idea for an author to be on the show, you can email us at our contact page on the website. And authors are welcome to submit to be on the show on the author page. If you sign up for our email list at our website, thank you for that, we'll give you a free ebook, a work of fiction written by your host. And by the way, if you do sign up, we promise not to spam you. That takes way too much time. We just send you periodic updates about the show. And please don't forget our sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte McMurk Library. Links to our fine sponsors and the resources are on the webpage and in the show notes. You can find out more about us and our sister shows at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. We'll be back next time recording in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, right there in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. It's a welcoming space for members who like to collaborate and be creative. 
In our next episode, we welcome authors Jessica Peterson and Rick Prill. Rick's sitting right here today, so thank you, Rick, for being here. They will unleash their romance books, their juicy text and writing secrets into the podcast world. And we definitely will need an explicit tag for this episode, so tune in. (laughs) Until then, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.